Well, good morning. morning. Rumors of my demise were greatly exaggerated. Um, For those of you who weren't here, I was not with us last Sunday. Uh, That was not the plan. Um, (laughs) I uh, actually went in at the end of the week, not to give TMI, to be guilty of TMI, but I, I went in at the end of the week for what I thought was going to be a routine surgical procedure. And about Saturday, I was in uh, enormous pain and couldn't move and was still convinced that I would show up to preach. But when you're married, you have someone who has a lot more wisdom and intelligence than you do. (laughs) And in a weakened condition, literally can tell you, oh, no, you won't. (laughs) And so at 8 o'clock in the evening, calls were made. And I just want to acknowledge just how our staff rallied uh, Drew and others and Pastor Joe preaching a phenomenal sermon on the fly, uh, just stepping in and... and, um, enabling me to then, uh, with that same wife, t- take me to the doctor on Monday to find out that I had actually developed a pretty serious infection and another complication from the procedure. And so I pretty much have been in my bed uh, <laughs> through Friday. Friday's the first time that I got up. I'm feeling a lot better, um, but I'm still a little punchy. Um, I made it through the first service, so we'll see how it go- goes for the second. But if I fall over, Joe, wherever you are, tag, you're it. Um, <laughs> Um, I also want to say, before I dismiss the kids, how much I really appreciate um, the prayers. Uh, some of you also contacted and, and didn't speak to me directly. You went through the shield known as my wife. Um, <laughs> and I just, I, I'm very, very thankful for the prayers and kind thoughts that you sent my way. I, I know that we do this for each other as the people of God, um, but it means a lot when you're on the receiving end. And I know that part of the reason that I'm able to stand before you today and preach is because of those prayers being lifted up and, and being received. So I thank you not only as your pastor, but as a member of this community for um, ministering to me in that way. So that being said, here I am. And at this time, the kids are dismissed to Bible Adventures with Miss Beth. Before you go, just for parents, starting next Sunday, August 14th through September 4th, there will be no Sunday school, no Bible Adventures for first grade and up so that we can give some of our uh, shepherds and teachers a little bit of a break. So that'll resume again on the 11th. They're welcome in service, but we will not have it next Sunday through the 4th. But the children are able to go to Sunday school today, to Bible Adventures. The middle schoolers have been staying with us throughout the summer. Glad to have you with us. And I want to invite the rest of us to turn to Exodus chapter 20. So if you have your Bibles handy or you want to grab the Bible in the pew, turn to Exodus chapter 20. Love you too. Even though right now you're all going like this. Just, just kidding, just, just kidding, just kidding. <laughs> Child of the 60s, right over there. <laughs> um, Exodus chapter 20. As you're opening up to Exodus ch- chapter 20, we're back in the Ten Commandments. We took that break with my departure. Um, we're back in it. And two weeks ago, as I was preparing to preach on this, the Sunday before, someone actually came up to me and said, so what's the next commandment you're preaching on? What are we preaching on next Sunday? I said, we're preaching on you shall not steal. Oh, good. I don't have a problem with that one. I won't be there for that Sunday. I'm, it's a true story. True story. True story. And, and I was like, well, and you know, it, it just gets back, gets back to that mentality that we have when it comes to the Ten Commandments of we see these as a checklist. You know, whether we don't show up or if we do, it's kind of like one of these things of we're dodging a bullet. I hope this one doesn't apply to me today. You know, it's like we're, we're ducking down and we're missing the point. This, this isn't about, is this your commandment? Is this your word? It, all of these words are for us, and they're not a means of condemnation. They're a means of salvation. They are a means of living out of the grace that we've been given in Christ. So if that's still the orientation as you come in, or maybe you've missed parts of these, 
hear these words as words of invitation of how to live a different way, to live a life that's been freed in Christ, freed in Jesus Christ. So in that spirit, as was our custom, let's read the Ten Commandments together. Beloved, what are the Ten Commandments? I am the Lord your God. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Honor your father and mother. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet. What is the Eighth Commandment, beloved? You shall not steal. What does this commandment mean? Jesus said, For out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murder, adultery, theft. These are what make a person unclean. It is an act of love and justice toward God and toward His creatures when we do what we can for our neighbor's good. We will protect people's stuff rather than try to take it from them. We will work faithfully so that we may share with the poor. The first part of the law is this great commandment that we love the Lord our God with all our heart, with all our mind, and with all our strength. The second part of the law flows out of our understanding of the first. We must love our neighbors as ourselves. This is the word of the Lord, beloved. Thanks be to God. You know, when it comes to stealing, when we think of it, most of us conjure up images of a pickpocket or a mugger or some armed robber who breaks into our house and swipes all the jewelry, electronics, and other valuables. Or maybe in the 21st century with all of our technology, it's that faceless person who hacks into supposedly secure websites and with our social security number and credit card numbers assumes our identity. Or maybe in the midst of the economic crisis we find ourselves in, we think of stealing and we think of those slick Wall Street types. Those corporate executives who overvalued their company and their assets but still managed to make millions, even get bonuses in the midst of gigantic losses that reduced or evaporated the life savings and retirement portfolios of thousands of everyday people like you and me. Because of images like, images like these, when it comes to theft, most of us tend to perceive ourselves as the victims rather than the perpetrators. Stealing is what happens when someone takes what belongs to me. And in a bit of irony and the delay in preaching this sermon, amongst the other things I had to deal with, on Friday I got a call from my bank asking me if I had recently tried to acquire gas in Las Vegas. And my first act of resurrecting from the dead was going down to the bank and then seeing all of the different ways in which the person who had ghosted my debit card had used it from gassing up to get, getting to Vegas and finally being stopped, thank the Lord, in Vegas. And as I filled out the paperwork and imagined in my mind who this person was, it, it reminded me that, you know, if we've ever been a victim of a robbery, you walk away feeling exposed, don't you? You walk away feeling violated. You walk away feeling insecure. And, you know, you get mad. I walked out of that place. I hope that so-and-so gets nice. You know what kind of week I've had? You know what I'm going through right now? I wanted justice, man. When you get stolen from, you want justice. You know, I don't know anybody who says, you know, stealing's cool. 
There's a universal societal objection to this kind of behavior. No decent, civilized person would engage in this kind of crime. And yet, despite our repulsion towards stealing and that repulsion being tied to the limits that we put on imagining that act, God's perspective, as we're about to hear this morning, is much wider. With this eighth word, we're challenged to extend our vision and see the kinds of thievery that we often overlook. The kind of stealing, if you will and if you'll permit me, that's regularly committed by people like you and me, by decent, civilized folk like you and I. I mean, think about it. We live in a world where most of us don't think twice about illegally downloading music or movies. And I know we've got enough middle schoolers and older here that you know what I'm talking about if the peop other people don't. And if you're not in that place where we've been around long enough with computers that most of us don't think twice about sharing software licenses. Copying software onto multiple computers even though that's not the terms of agreement when we purchase the software. And all of us are old enough to have at least at some point, if we haven't ourselves indulged in, know of others who have, the term is, borrowed office supplies. Or perhaps in your own job at some point, in any place that you've worked, you've maybe been guilty of overbilling your hours at work. I'm clocking in early. I'm not starting yet, but I'll clock in now. I'm good for it. Or clocking in late. I wasn't exactly working, but I didn't get to the clock in time. Or, you know what, I'll just consider this a business expense. And we all have grown up with, and it's a new, new challenge in the 21st century for many of our uh, students that we all learned a long time ago, I hope, that we don't copy an idea without crediting the source. That's considered plagiarism. For many of our teens, that's a new concept with the Internet. Because if you can cut and paste it off the Internet, what's the big deal? It's on the Internet. Everybody uses it. But if none of this strikes where you're living, let's go to the default. Let, well, maybe let's not even mention our annual income tax returns. I mean, how many of us here, and you don't have to answer this out loud, how many of us here actually declare all of our income for a given year? How many of us look for loopholes and creative inter creatively interpret deductions so that we can avoid paying what we owe? You know, when it comes to our taxes, the line between saving versus cheating on our taxes, is a real fuzzy one. And what this all draws out, just these few examples, is that on the one hand, apparently, when someone has stolen what belongs to me, it's crystal clear. But when I filch what belongs to others, it's not so obvious. But yet, in saying all this, I mean, how many of us this morning came today thinking of ourselves as thieves, let alone wanting to think of ourselves as thieves? I mean, this is what I got up and went to church this morning? Great, I'm a thief. I mean, you're sitting here, if you're honest, and some of you in your mind right now, and you're like, come on, Pastor Chris, give me a break, man. Who hasn't, come on, who hasn't cut a few corners? Who hasn't cut a few corners? Who hasn't shaved a little bit off the top? Who hasn't fudged a few numbers now and then? I mean, it's all about getting the best deal, right? I mean, everybody does it. Because after all, who wants to be a sucker? I mean, none of you got up this morning and wanted to be told you're a sucker. No one wants to be the person who actually pays what the law, what the contract, what the government requires when no one else does. When you can find a way to pay less, they wouldn't have ways to pay less if you weren't supposed to try. 
And that leads into that other mentality that we start to think as we get pushed further. We start to rationalize and we go, hey, pastor, come on, man. If there's no victim, you know, baby, there's no crime. If there's no victim, there's no crime. I mean, who's the victim in all the things I just listed? Who, who's the victim? Who's the victim? That multi-million dollar rock star? Oh, boo-hoo. That multi-million dollar movie studio? Come on. That multi-million dollar software company? I think they're good for it. That multi-million dollar Wall Street firm? Seriously. The IRS? Come on! You know, the thing is, more and more we live in a world of mass production and automated assembly lines. We believe that we can get what we want from wherever we want in the world, whenever we want. We believe that supplies are seemingly endless, and we also believe that therefore real costs are dirt cheap. I mean, how many, what's the real cost? No, 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 what does it really cost? I mean, we in a, we're in a world of such mass production and assembly lines, and again, where we, we can get whatever we want, whenever we want, we are convinced we don't know the real cost. And, but if we did, it's way cheaper, way cheaper than what they're putting out there. So what's the real cost? And also the scope and weight of corporate manufacturing, production and distribution has made, also made the identity of the creator of the, and providers of the goods and services that we take anonymous. So when we hear all these things about stealing and the references I made, these examples, what we think of are faceless institutions. All we see are neon signs and billboards, logos and jingles. It's easy in this modern world in which we live, in which so much moves so fast, we can get it so quickly, it's easy to forget there are real people. There's real blood, sweat, and tears behind the creation and distribution of the things that we consume. That's one of the reasons why this can be so easy to look past, but the other reason why stealing can be so tempting, even for people like us, is if we're really, really honest, if we really come clean, we all want something for nothing. We all want something for nothing. I mean, that's what it's all about. We want something for nothing or as close to nothing as we can get. That's another byproduct of this world in which we can get whatever we want, whenever we want, all the time. The ease of acquisition fosters the lie that what we want is ours for the taking. But if we truly understand the value of things, it ought to make us think twice about how we acquire our goods and services in the world. Digital music, software, office supplies, creative tax accounting, plagiarism. The breach of relationship is just as real even though we can't see the faces. Because contrary to the fact that we all want something for nothing, as Christians especially, we know, we profess, nothing is free. Nothing is free. As Christians, most of all, when we look at this cross each and every week, we know that somebody pays the price. Somebody pays the price for what we enjoy. And beloved, to push it further with this eighth word this morning, biblically, somebody pays the price for what we enjoy. And if the right person isn't paying, it's stealing. If the right person isn't paying, it's stealing. You know, I was preparing this message, and all of a sudden, one of those old childhood sayings just kept, kept like reverberating in my head, and, and I, all of a sudden, I realized, oh my gosh, how do I understand that childhood saying in the midst of this eighth word? You know that childhood saying? Finders keepers, losers weepers. 
Finders, keepers, losers, weepers. Finders, keepers, losers, weepers in the lens of this eighth word is dead wrong. I mean, I grew up with that, man. I said it all the time to my sister. Finders, keepers, losers, weepers. My parents never backed me up. Never backed me up. And I'm like, you don't understand. That's the code. Finders, keepers, losers, weepers. They didn't back me up because finders, keepers, losers, weepers is dead wrong. Because according to the eighth word this morning, that loser is your neighbor. Even if you can't see him, even if you don't know her identity, even if that loser is your enemy, Jesus says, that loser is your neighbor and mine. When we take what doesn't belong to us, we make victims of our neighbors. But our neighbor isn't the only victim. The unity of these ten words, and that's why you can't just selectively look at them, the unity of the ten words together reminds us again and again that the ultimate victim is none other than God. Because the shape of the commandments again demonstrates to us that how we treat each other has a direct correlation to our relationship with God. When we harm each other, when we damage the horizontal relationship, when we harm each other, we distort the vertical relationship. We distort the divine image. When we alienate ourselves from each other, we alienate ourselves from God. That's why Jesus, when he was asked to summarize the law, held these two things together. You know, speaking of sayings, we also like to say, possession is nine-tenths of the law. Possession is nine-tenths of the law. I heard that all the time when I was a kid. I never understood what the heck that meant. Possession is nine-tenths of the law. One person finally explained it to me. But possession is nine-tenths of the law is one of these expressions that we throw out. But the, the real question is, whose law? Possession is nine-tenths of whose law? Because according to God's law, God's law reminds us to consider the source of all that we are and all that we have. I mean, to put it another way, in God's economy, does anything really belong to us? Yes and no. I mean, on the one hand, the Bible is clear that humanity, humankind, being created in God's image, part of being reflecting that image of God that is within us is we are commanded in Genesis. We are commanded in being created to, and we are equipped to cultivate and fill the earth. That's our reflection of God within us. The reflection of the divine image is when we cultivate and fill the earth. That's what Adam and Eve were told, and so it continues through our humanity. The Lord has endowed us, if you will, with the will and the skill to produce, to make things out of creation. All of the creativity, all of the intelligence, all of the energy, all of ourselves that we pour into God's creation establishes a bond a proprietary interest, a sense of ownership. This is why we have such strong feelings about our possessions, because property, physical, intellectual property, is an extension of ourselves. From the earliest moment when a child makes its first picture with crayons and says, I made this! I made this! Our property, what we create, is an extension of ourselves. And this is how God intended for it to be. We reflect the divine when we create, when we fill the earth. But the scriptures also reinforce that our sense of personal property is derived from God's ownership. The Bible says over and over again, as the creator of all things, the Lord owns the whole universe and all that it contains. The whole universe and all that it contains, all that it contains. The second part reinforces that since God created the universe out of nothing, 
we must always get our materials for what we make from somewhere else, but ultimately from Him. What this means, beloved, is that our ownership is always derivative. It's always conditional. So for a Christian, any sense of ownership we have is always secondary to our stewardship. If you will, for a Christian, ownership is stewardship. We hear this word a lot, stewardship, in the church. But again, to remind us, a steward is a servant who manages someone else's property for the benefit of the owner. God, who owns everything by right of creation, has entrusted some of it to you and to me to manage on his behalf. We best reflect the image of our God. We best know ourselves in Christ. We are the most fulfilled when we exercise our proper roles as stewards, when we cultivate and use what we have been given. And in the church, we break that down into time, talent, and treasure. Let me be clear about this, if you're tracking with me. It's not that we're defined by our stuff. It's not like we like to say, whoever has the most toys wins. It is that we are defined by what we do with what we have been given. So, if you're with me, for a Christian, biblically, property is a way of speaking about those particular pieces of creation over which I personally exercise my part, my calling as God's steward. So if we understand it from this lens, why is stealing wrong? Because. Because the Lord God has made each of us and all of us stewards of his creation. For each person, each one of us here today, God has given a specific calling. God has given authority and responsibility to be exercised for specific reasons and purposes. God does not want one person to deny or take away someone else's calling. See, stealing isn't just about taking someone's property. This is what I'm trying to get you to understand. Stealing isn't about just taking someone's property. It's denying or usurping that person's God-given authority and responsibility in a given area or situation with that stuff. And what this really means, if you're still with me, is that we can actually, when we do such things as, as stealing, we can actually be stealing from ourselves. We can be stealing from ourselves. For if everything is owned by God and we are responsible to him, then any failure to fulfill our responsibilities, to exercise our responsibilities under God, can also be considered a form of theft. You with me? Wealth, intelligence, strength, creativity, our gifts, gifts, not possessions. We each have been given what we have been given so that we might exercise them for the glory of God, for the sake of the kingdom. Beloved, to put this another way, we can get all fired up when people take our stuff, just like I was on Friday. We can get all fired up and mad and want justice when people take our stuff and our ideas. But I ask you, when's the last time that you took inventory of what you have been doing with what you have been given? And when's the last time you got fired up and wanted justice in terms of living up to what God has given you in your life? 
To put it more bluntly, as Malachi the prophet lays it right out there, are we robbing God? See, our sense of dominion, our sense of control when it comes to our stuff has less to do with possession. It has less to do with, this is mine. I possess it. Our sense of dominion and control when it comes to our stuff has more to do, all to do with responsibility. I was given this for a reason, for a purpose. The things that I own are those things that I am responsible to God for. My home, my car, my wealth, other resources. These are my things and not other stuff. Those, that's other stuff. These are my things. I'm not responsible for your things. I'm not responsible to maintain your car. I'm not responsible to make your house payment. I'm not responsible to make sure that your wealth and resources are used for the benefit of your family and for the kingdom and for God's glory because truly, these are your things that you are responsible before God for. I have my own responsibilities. If I take what is yours without asking permission, if I steal what is yours, what have I done? I have violated an area of responsibility that God has given to you, not me. I have stolen from you, not merely your stuff, not just things. I have robbed you of your created and creative identity. I have denied you your specific calling as a steward of God's kingdom. Whoa. So once again, we find ourselves with the implications of God's word going well beyond what we might expect. There's more to this admonition not to steal than we first thought. And it's pushed even further. We've got one more place to go here because this commandment, we still in what we're, where we are right now, this commandment still kind of breaks down to simply knowing the line between what's mine and what's yours. Where's the line between what's mine and what's yours? But the eighth word pushes us to understand that it's not about the line at all. And to help us get there, I want to quote the ancient rabbis. The ancient rabbis reflecting on this part of the law once wrote, For because of the guilt of theft, famine comes upon the world. Hear that again. For because of the guilt of theft, famine comes upon the world. Now some of us might be going, huh, what? What this, is, this, this little saying is drawing out is what centuries of interpretation with this eighth word, centuries of interpretation with the eighth word have always come back to a repeated idea that pushes us even further when we come to think about stealing. And this idea is that when you're wealthy, while your neighbor lives in poverty, you are also guilty of stealing. <sighs> what? This sounds communist. <laughs> this sounds communist. Is you sure that's in the Bible? Yes, I'm sure it's in the Bible. But if you're doubting, let's again go back. If God is the owner and we are all stewards... By the way, do you realize we all have the same job in the midst of everything else? We all actually have the same job. We're all stewards. If God is the owner and we're all stewards, then the, most, the ultimate and shared act of stewardship, the one place where we all have the same responsibility, is in taking care of each other. 
If God is in charge of everything and we are all stewards, the ultimate and shared act of our stewardship is in taking care of each other, in taking care, loving our neighbor. The scriptures come back to this again and again. And that's, that's, that's a tough word to hear, a tough word for us even to share together, especially in the times in which we live. We have been created to care for each other. We have been created to love our neighbor. And it's hard in the 21st century. It's hard in the 21st century to love your neighbor. Because you know what? We live in a culture of consumption unlike any other that history has ever known. We live on a hungry planet. We live on a hungry planet in a world where half the population, half the population lives on only $2 a day. $2 a day. Countless numbers die each day because of lack of clean water, limited or scarce food sources, the inability to get the most basic vaccines and antibiotics while we're struggling to find our needs and our wants. I mean, I got to make this statement on the side in the midst of the crisis that we find ourselves in in this part of the world. And this is not a political statement. I swear to you, it is a biblical one. Because in the midst of all that's going on, can we just at least come clean and confess that in the midst of all the trouble that we're in economically, the plain truth of it is, we want something for nothing. We want the problem fixed, but we don't want to give anything up. We, we, we all agree there's a problem, but we all don't necessarily want to lose anything. We don't want the debt ceiling to go up. We don't want benefits to cut back. Don't raise taxes. We know we're in trouble, but nobody wants to give anything up. That's our posture. That's the reality we live in. We want something for nothing where half the world is simply wondering, am I going to live tomorrow? That's their crisis. Am I going to live tomorrow? Beloved, God's word for us through this commandment, as amplified by later scriptures, cannot be ignored. When our neighbor is hungry and in need and we just continue consuming, wasting, and throwing away what we have been given, we together are guilty of stealing. We are guilty of stealing. But again, remember where we started. This eighth word is not just about condemnation. It's not just about pointing a finger. This eighth word is a means of grace, not telling us what not to do, but in telling us what not to do, pointing us to what we ought to do, to who we can be. For in commanding us not to steal, God is also pointing us in a different direction. In commanding us not to steal, God is also commanding us to give. For the opposite of stealing is generosity. The opposite of theft, taking, is giving. God commands us not to steal and therefore commands us to give because giving doesn't always come naturally. Our default is to go, mine. And, and more and more, the allure and the addiction towards consumption, to buy, to hoard, to possess, is powerful. And so God speaks a word in the midst of that addiction and says, no, give. God saves us by giving us an alternative way to live, a new habit for living. And generosity is one of those habits, something that is not natural that we have to learn. And as we learn to be generous, we become who we were truly meant to be. For when we give, we become like God. We reflect the divine image, the abundant, generous, loving nature of this God whose giving has no limits, who in coming to us in Jesus Christ has demonstrated what it means to give to the very end. That's why, if you never learned this, why taking an offering is a central part of our worship service. If you've always wondered, what's up with the plates, the baskets? Why are they taking money? 
That's why the offering is a central part, repeated part of our worship. We tithe or sacrificially offer from what we have as a way of acknowledging where it all comes from. We put something in the plate. We offer to help as part of the ministry of the church. We donate an hour or two serving a meal, sharing some company with some homeless person to reinforce our stewardship to each other and to God. We are taught and invited to give weekly as a habit to protect and prevent us from robbing each other blind. We give week in and week out here. Day by day, we're encouraged to give so that by God's grace, in a world that screams louder and louder, more, that screams louder and louder, it's our best deal yet, we are capable of saying, no, enough is enough. Stanley Hauerwas and Will Willimon are two uh, theologians who once interviewed uh, their next-door neighbor who was a rabbi. And uh, this is the conversation that they recount. Their rabbi asks them, what's stewardship? And they say, oh, well, it's when the church asks for support for its ministry. And the rabbi says, you mean money? And they go, well, yeah, money, but also time and talent. And then the rabbi said, you ask? We, Jew we Jews are told to give money. If you are a Jew, you give. Simple as that. Our Jewish brothers and sisters are bringing us back to this idea that for us, well, we have to be asked in order to give. No, if we follow and are people of this God, we give because this is what God tells us to do. This is God, who God calls us to be. I know, it takes real, I know right now, I mean, it takes real honest effort to step back and get some distance and look at who we are. It's tough to step back and look at what we're doing with our money in our lives. But beloved, as we've heard this morning, stealing from the grandest larceny to the pettiest theft flows from two misunderstandings. As Christians, what is ours? What we have been given is not in order to buy more stuff. If we are greedy and grasping, if, this is, if all of it is mine, and if we keep saying more, then the truth is we're living in insecurity. And the truth is, is that insecurity means that we lack faith. In mirroring this commandment on the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil or spin, yet your Father clothes them. Beloved, stealing results and giving is MIA, missing in action, when we fail to trust God's provision. But when life is received as a gracious gift, God's gracious gift, we find ourselves free to give. We have jobs, resources, treasures, and talents so that we can give. They are our means of living our first and shared calling as stewards. We live and breathe and we work so that we can share, so that we can improve not just our own lives, but so that we can improve the lives of others. If we work just to gather stuff, if we work just to have stuff, to collect stuff, it'll never be enough because our stuff does not fulfill us. It can't fulfill us. That's not what our stuff is for. Our stuff is a means of our potential stewardship. Our stuff represents our ability to contribute, to help someone else, to make the world a better place. And beloved, the most fulfilling experience you and I can ever have, you, we will ever have, is living into our calling as God's stewards, doing our part, because this is what we were created for. Enough is enough. When we, feed, when we steal in whatever form, we're living out of insecurity rather than faith, and we're denying our very humanity. 
In fact, if our highest standard is, well, I won't get caught, we make ourselves something less than human. We may not be likely to get caught if we go ahead and do it. But as we've learned today, the choice to take what is not ours is a crime with victims. Our neighbor, our children, our God, and yes, even ourselves. The moment we begin to violate the Eighth Commandment, we cannot help but break the Ninth Commandment. But more on that later. In closing, there is hope for us. There is hope for thieves like you and I. There's hope in the midst of all of our fear and insecurity and all in the midst of all of our clutching and grabbing. Hope in remembering the story of a man named Zacchaeus. Small of stature, but large in terms of his pockets, Zacchaeus was a wealthy man. His wealth, however, came from ill-gotten gain. You see, Zacchaeus was a tax collector a despised man amongst his Jewish brothers and sisters because he collected taxes from them for the Roman government. He was seen by his own people as a traitor and a thief. And indeed, he truly was a thief. For the Bible tells us that as a tax collector, it was his practice to make himself rich through extortion and fraud, getting more than what was owed. But one day, Jesus came knocking on his door. Jesus desired to break bread with this thief. He desired to sit at his table in order to teach Zacchaeus another way to live. Confronted with the law and the grace of God, Zacchaeus became in that moment a changed man. He stopped stealing and learned to be generous. He paid back what he had taken fourfold and committed himself to giving to those in need. My brothers and sisters, he found his calling. He found fulfillment. The scriptures tell us that during that encounter, Jesus said that this was the reason he came. To seek and save that which is lost. And what Jesus said of his reason for coming can be said of the law as well. The law was given to seek and save that which is lost. Jesus came to fulfill the law. The two come together in this story. And in our world of consumption, there are two things that money cannot buy. Two things money cannot buy. The strength of integrity and the joy of a clear conscience. What money cannot buy, grace seeks to give. As gifts of grace, integrity and forgiveness cannot be bought. But they also cannot be stolen from us as well. Their pleasure, their freedom can only be had through the daily choices we make, again and again opening our hands to Jesus so that we can give ourselves away for the sake of the world. <coughs> so this morning, let's stop taking and let's start giving. Let's take what we have been given and live into our calling and find fulfillment. And if we do, my brothers and sisters in Christ, we shall find, like Zacchaeus, that salvation has come into this house. Amen? Amen. Amen.